0: Reenactments are a success or not a success based on A, the relationships you build with the folks who are kind of the deal breakers, I like to say, and B, what the actual site looks like.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here once again. Before we get started, I did want to say thank you to everyone who supports us via Patreon. And a special thanks to our two newest Patreon supporters, Dan and Remo. Thank you guys very much. Um, If you're not already a Patreon supporter, if you're listening to this when it comes out, this is probably your last chance to sign up for Patreon in time to get the annual Reenactor's Corner Christmas card that I'm going to be mailing out in a few days. Um, So thanks guys for your support. So let's just jump right into this episode. Uh, We've got a special guest today who I am really excited to talk to. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, Adam Bednar, thanks for coming on the program.
0: Great to be here, Chris.
1: All right. So for people who don't know who you are, um, why don't you please sort of give a short introduction of yourself and let us know how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as mentioned, my name's Adam Bednar, been reenacting for, oh, I want to say 16, 17 years at this point, so started my foray into reenacting back in 2007 as a bright-eyed and uh, bushy-tailed, 20-year-old college student. I was always interested in history, in specific the German perspective from history. I very distinctively remember watching Saving Private Ryan and really wondering who were the guys that, you know, Tom Hanks and Matt Damon were shooting at, and what were all these interesting pieces of equipment that they were wearing on their person. I was really drawn to the gas mask canister, which, you know, Chris, is a very unique piece of equipment to the Germans. Um, So that really led me to researching different reenacting groups in my area. I'm based in the Chicagoland area, and we're very fortunate to have a ton of different World War II reenacting units in our metropolitan area, Axis, Allied, Civilian, etc. Um, Reached out to a particular group called uh, Fifth Company Gross Deutschland, Um, really solid group of guys. The unit's been around for 20, 25 years. And the rest is kind of history. I joined. I've been with that unit my entire reenacting tenure. I think it's a really group, great group of guys, really talented individuals, really helpful. And I've really had no motivation to go elsewhere for my German reenacting fix. So in that time period, rose through the ranks from a standard Schutze, um, Went up to a squad leader, held a variety of different officer roles as treasurer, recruiting officer, helped redesign a website, was um, instrumental in kicking off Zoom interviews with new prospective members. And that takes us all the way up until just a few months ago, where I was uh, voted very graciously as the unit commander of 5th Company Gross Deutschland by the members, which I... I'm very eternally grateful for. Um, it's a big group, probably about 45 members on paper. A lot of heavy equipment, um, weapon systems. So, really being entrusted with this role by the membership is something that's um, kind of near and dear to my heart. And um, yeah, that kind of takes us up to today talking.
1: That sounds really cool. How many events about do you guys do each year?
0: I'd say roughly, Chris, we do about 10 to 12 events a year. I'd say there's about an even split between public events and tacticals. Um, I will say that since uh, COVID in 2020, a lot of our longstanding events, at least here in the Midwest, a lot of the public ones have unfortunately gone away. So we've really tried to branch out a bit more and start adding some new events, at least as of 2024 here. So I'd say about 10 to 15 events,
1: roughly. That's a really impressive schedule. Um, what about the numbers in your group? Are you guys still recruiting? Are you still bringing on new members?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say we've actually had a, a bit of a renaissance in new members joining. We've actually had about four or five new people join within the past two or three months, which is great, just speaking to the longevity of the unit. Um, I'd say on paper, we've got about 45, 50 active due paying members. I'd say within that number, there's a core group of probably about 20, 25 guys that consistently come out. Um, So it's really great just to see that level of commitment of um, the unit members coming out to events.
1: That's outstanding. Um, Are all of your guys sort of local to your region? I know you guys are, are based in the Midwest. Is that where your members live for the most part?
0: That's correct, Chris. So predominantly Chicagoland area, so Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana is kind of our bread and butter for membership.
1: It seems to me like um, the Midwest is sort of a, almost kind of a hotspot for reenacting in North America, um, at least kind of at this time with, I, I think, the biggest uh, World War II reenactment event in the country is in Conneaut, Ohio. Yep. And then there are all of these other events that I uh, read about on social media every year that take place in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I, I mean, why do you think that is that uh, reenacting in the Midwest maybe is a bigger thing than it is in a lot of other regions of North America?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think, I think at least from the German perspective, the fact that So many people of German heritage settled in the Midwest. I think that's a big uh, motivation, at least on the German side. We have many, many German units based in the Midwest. You can't go 10 feet in Wisconsin, for example, without finding something German or stumbling across German equipment in antique stores. I really think the Midwest, being geographically where it's located, you're at kind of a central crossroads for guys on the West Coast, guys in the South, guys from up in Canada, um, folks on the East Coast like yourself, Chris. I think it's just it being kind of that crossroads of America, it's a natural gathering point for a lot of these events. I think the fact that the Midwest is predominantly farmland outside of uh, major metropolitan areas means there's a lot of usable land. And in my experience, at least from the event planning side, there's a lot of Individuals and private landowners that want to do things. So I think it just—it's a natural breeding ground, just geographically, for World War II reenactors and reenactments.
1: I think that's really interesting and insightful. Thanks for that. Um, so, what I guess we really want to focus for today, talking to you about um, something that you have a lot of uh, expertise in, more <clears throat> than I do, certainly, and that is um, sort of. Uh, running and hosting reenactment events, um, what it takes and what makes for a good event. So um, what are the events that that you're doing now or have done in the past?
0: Yeah, so that's quite an extensive list. Um, I would say in the past, um, one of the biggest ones that comes to mind is uh, Military History Weekend in Lockport, Illinois. It's located about 45 minutes outside of Chicago. And I was recently put on the event planning committee for that event, but my unit essentially started that event with partnership from the local park district there. And that event really came out of just two of the more senior individuals in our unit and an individual who actually is in the pyrotechnics industry, has worked in movies and film. And there was really an opportunity where he knew that this local community was... I think, struggling a little bit, looking to boost their tourism revenue. And it was a very conservative town, for lack of a better term. A lot of the areas that support reenactments skew a little more conservative. And these individuals within the unit established a strong relationship with the Park District, kind of did a bit of a business pitch. And at this point, that event is on year number 12 right now. I know from registration numbers we had about i want to say 5 or 600 reenactors and it's a really good kind of case study Chris where you get an entire community tied in with an event where you know you have people out with food trucks you have local vendors you have sponsorships from banks and you know real estate agents and it's been a really good experience there so that was the first big one that really kind of got my attention where I'm like hey this event planning angle this is something that kind of interests me. I'm kind of a macro level individual. I like to see the big picture and all the moving pieces that makes an event successful or just anything as a whole. Um, Professionally, I'm a project manager at a very large healthcare company. So it's my nine to five job to really keep track of things, look at budgets, establish schedules and timelines for things. But I think more importantly, Bring together the right people to make an event successful. Um, so I'd say within the past, you know, year, year and a half, it's really been a whirlwind of activities. Um, so we saw an opportunity within our unit where a lot of tacticals were being canceled, a lot of public events were being canceled due to COVID. So we started up a pair of tacticals. Um, in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, which is about 45 minutes west of Madison. And both of these events came out of similar tacticals that were unfortunately canceled um, in the general Chicagoland area or the Midwest. Um, So the first one we kicked off was called Victory in Ardennes event. As you can tell by the title, it is um, strictly a Western Front Battle of the Bulge um, event. Unfortunately, a other Battle of the Bulge tactical had been canceled um, nearby in Wisconsin, so there was a bit of an opportunity to reestablish it. Um, I know from talking to a lot of GI reactors um, and also Germans that people love breaking out their greatcoats and parkas and running around in the snow trying to shoot each other. Um, so funny story with this event was that the same individual who was in the pyrotechnics industry happened to have a hunting lodge up in this very small town in Wisconsin. And he'd kind of been bending the ear of a couple unit members that we needed to do an event there. And we finally got around to it. We had the right people in place that wanted to take a crack at event planning. So we kicked off that event um, last year. Or so actually, this year in 2023. Um, was an overwhelming success out of 150 registered reenactors. We had 125 actually show up, which is a phenomenal um, showing of support for a first-time event. We obviously uh, learned, um, it had some hard lessons learned out of that, but that's how it goes uh, when you're running an event. Um, and then our newest event, Romanian Spring, which is taking place this coming April, also in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, is an Eastern Front um Immersive event specifically looking at the battles around the Romanian town of Targo Furumas um, In April and May of 1944, which historically Grossdeutschland my German unit fought but um, Has very unique terrain um, and I feel like will be another very exciting event coming up here So a lot of activity within uh, just the past few years here Chris
1: That's really impressive And I know it takes a lot to uh, line something like that up with all of the different aspects that need to be considered from the property and working with the landowner to coordinating reenactor registrations, figuring out what's going to happen at the event, um, you know, and uh, so many other things that goes along with all of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of moving pieces behind the scenes. Um, I think a lot of people... There's a public perception of reenactments, whether they're public or private, tacticals, where you know everybody gets dressed up and shoots each other and pretends it's 1944. Um, that is the, um, I would say, external-facing side of reenactments. I would say, from an event planner's perspective, that is probably the of the least concern. Obviously, we want people to have a good time. We want people to support the event and help us cover our costs. Um, But there's a lot of logistics behind the scenes that need to happen frequently years in advance of some of these events occurring where it's really building relationships with kind of key stakeholders, whether that's a property owner, whether that's a local municipality and really kind of touring the property. A lot of times um, reenactments are success or not a success based on a the relationships you build with the folks who are kind of the deal breakers I like to say and B what the actual site looks like what is kind of the topography is it in a built-up area is it more remote are there access to electricity and potable water are there bathrooms is there parking Um, do we have to work worry about the local authorities do we need to worry about the neighbors the second they hear an anti-tank gun go off calling the sheriff and then somebody needs to go talk to the sheriff. So it's really a lot of upfront relationship building and building trust with the individuals that own the property or have access to the resources potentially that you need to make the reenactment a success. My biggest piece of advice I would say, Chris, is if you want to take a crack at planning a reenactment, just be prepared to spend a disproportionate amount of your time talking to folks, getting their buy-in and, you know, drumming up support for your event. Um, I will definitely say that you definitely get out of a reenactment at the end of the day, what you put into it. And it certainly is
1: a lot of work. It sounds like a tremendous amount of work. You mentioned briefly, um, Issues with authorities and adjacent landowners. <clears throat> That's something that I've often wondered about. And I know it's probably different in every area, but do you guys uh, notify law enforcement? Do you um, have to worry about telling? Uh, neighbors about what's going on because the sound of a World War II battle raging it's a very loud thing (laughs) and it's something that I'm sure attracts a lot of attention and I I have some a little bit of experience with how we've done this here at some events that I'm associated with but I'm curious what your approach is to that
0: yeah I think it's a great question and it's it's one of those first phone calls that you need to make when you're in the planning stages Um, I will say for the two tacticals that I mentioned earlier, Victory in the Ardennes and Romanian Spring, it was really leaning heavily on the property owners to say, hey, what's kind of the local law enforcement situation around here? Is this the type of community that when there's gunshots going off in the distance, are they going to care? Or is it maybe a community that's more into hunting and hearing random gunshots? It's not really going to be a distraction for them. So regardless what the answer to that question is, whether the neighbors will care or not, you have to go through the right legal, you know, entities. So in the case of these two tacticals, I had to email and call the local sheriff to say, hey, here's what's going on. Um, I know XYZ landowner who knows this is going on. He approves of it. And you really just have to be very straight up with what's going on. Hey, we're going to have a World War II reenactment. We're gonna have individuals with actual firearms and you know, blank firing firearms. Um, we won't have any live ammunition. You really need to stress the safety aspect when you're talking to local authorities or you know, EMS folks, local hospitals, just in case something happens. And I find that honesty is the best policy and just being very forthright and honest with what the reenactment will be like what the level of disruption will be to any local neighbors. And I find that I haven't gotten a lot of pushback in my experience. Um, You kind of have to develop a little bit of an elevator pitch to very quickly and succinctly say, here's what we're doing, here's the dates we're looking at, and also, hey, what is a World War II reenactment? And I think the more time you spend with these individuals, local authorities, property owners, Assuring them that, hey, safety is the number one priority, but also equally as important is we're not going to do anything people aren't comfortable with. So if I went to a local sheriff and said, we're going to do this, we're going to have explosions, we're going to have automatic gunfire, if he wasn't comfortable with pyrotechnics, I would kind of drop it there and say, okay, maybe that's something we can broach for a year or two. So I think local authorities is the first step. You mentioned talking to local neighbors. Again, that's something I lean heavily with the property owners on. They know their neighbors better than I ever will if they live somewhere full-time. With the Romanian Spring event, I actually tasked um, the property owners with, hey, go around, talk to the adjacent four properties that are closest to here, tell them about the event, feel them out. And in a lot of cases, people are totally fine with it. They will come and rubberneck They'll want to check it out and see what's going on. So I find that leveraging whoever is your point of contact on the site or who owns the site is going to give you a best indication of if you're going to get any pushback or if there's any special considerations.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, it's similar to uh, kind of how I've sort of approached that in the past, but... Um... I find that sometimes when you're talking to local authorities who maybe have never heard of a World War II reenactment before, um, they can Mm -hmm. sometimes ask some kind of wild and unexpected questions that Mm -hmm. can sort of be a struggle to field. And uh, so I think there is something to be said for the person who has to be the guy to have those conversations, has Mm -hmm. to be able to sort of be a good talker, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times it's, you know, giving your little elevator pitch about what you're proposing, what you want to do, and then just stop talking and say what questions you have for me. Um, I found that some of those maybe out of left field questions, um, I find as people talk on the phone and they understand that, hey, you're a level-headed individual. We're not going to be bringing a bunch of... um, conspiracy theory whack-jobs onto this property into my municipality to cause trouble. Um, I find that a lot of these kind of random questions sometimes you get, which, when you think about it from their perspective, if you're calling them blind, as a cold call to say, hey, I'm gonna bring 200-plus people to your jurisdiction to fight a pretend war and then we're gonna disappear 24 hours later, it's, uh, it's understandable why you may get some of the questions that you do, but I would say you need to be very succinct, very direct, get down to brass tacks because if you're talking to a local sheriff, this is one of 25 calls he's probably taking that day and you're probably, in the grand scheme of things, the least of his concerns. So the quicker you can get to the point, say, here's what we're doing. Is there anything I need to be worried about? Is there any special considerations Um, I need to appease you? And really just stress that you're doing it in a safe and legal manner. You're covering people for liability and for injuries. I find that, again, spending that upfront time building relationships and trust is crucial with making everything else that follows
1: way smoother. Sure. You mentioned covering people for liability. That's a a pretty tricky thing, isn't it, to deal with insurance for events? Um, What's your kind of insight on that aspect of it?
0: Yeah. So typically, um, you can go two different routes with events and liability insurance. If you have a public event, say the aforementioned Lockport, Illinois event, um, since you're working through a pub- public entity, you're working through a park district, which works through the city, which works through the state, they have their own you know, legal considerations. They usually have lawyers on retainer that can draft up liability documents. If you're going more the private route, In the case of these two tacticals uh, in Wisconsin, I usually try to work through the property owner's attorney um, to draft up something specific to that state. I know there's certain liability considerations in Wisconsin that are probably not the same as Illinois or in Massachusetts where you're at. Um, So I think taking point with any local entities that you're working with, kind of making sure their liability is covered. Um, We also have an organization um, in the Midwest called the World War II Historical Reenactment Society, and you can apply for this organization to host your event, kind of promote it on your behalf, and going along with that, you get coverage for their liability insurance. So there's a couple ways you can approach the liability insurance um, aspect. And you really also need to make sure that you inform not only local law enforcement, but local EMS and hospital facilities just in case something happens. I find having multiple levels of coverage is always a good idea.
1: And of course, insurance can cost money, but that's not the only cost that you will incur as an event host. Um, You mentioned getting people to the event to cover those costs. you know how much how much does it cost to do something like this? Generally speaking,
0: ooh, that's that's a big question. Um, of course, starting a, a first year event is always going to have more upfront costs. Um, you're going to need to kind of get resources up there and stage them. I mean, generally speaking, I'd say thousands of dollars at minimum. Um, the way I look at it, Chris, is there's two different routes you can go with a World War II reenactment. You can go a public event route in which you're working with a local park district or municipality, and that may require going through multiple layers of approval, but then at the end of there, you may get access to resources that if you're working on a private tactical, you just can't get. So if you're working through a park district, they probably have a maintenance department or public works department that may loan out some of their equipment if you're trying to dig trenches. That's going to cut your costs down significantly. But if you're going at a private route, um, I know Romanian Spring, our site is a big open field, rolling hills. Um, it's very virgin reenactment terrain, so to speak. So if we want to improve uh, terrain, we need to potentially rent equipment, we need to get volunteers in. We need to rent tools if we have to cut down firewood. So there's a lot of costs associated with that. Um, a tactical, just being the nature of a tactical, it's in a more rural area. You need to bring all those logistics and resources to bear. So what does water access look like? Um, do you need to rent porta-potties? In most cases, yes. People need to go to the bathroom. Some people don't want to go to the bathroom in the woods. Um is there ample firewood there? If there's not, do you need to cut down firewood? If you need to cut down firewood, does the site owner have chainsaws and do they have gas for those chainsaws? So every every reenactment is going to have a unique set of costs. Um, I find that you know having a down and dirty budget document really keeps you ahead of that. And if you're thinking about an event cost perspective, that really goes into how much you're going to charge for registration. Now, I'm not going to come off like a greedy capitalist. You're not going to make a ton of money running a reenactment. I think it can become profitable over time. But you really need to take into consideration, hey, I'm hosting a private tactical. This is the first time we're doing this tactical. We're going to have XYZ costs the first year, and then hopefully over time that diminishes. But you do need to kind of match up your registration fee with what your anticipated costs are. And I find, too, that just adding a bit of a buffer, you're going to have unforeseen costs come up at the last minute, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. So um, lots of costs, I'd say. Generally, you're
1: going to spend thousands of dollars. There kind of needs to be sort of a critical mass of people going um, so that those large costs can be spread among enough people that the event isn't cost prohibitive. Yeah. Um you know, what do you do sort of to make sure that there are going to be enough people paying the registration fee so that someone isn't going to be on the hook for some kind of huge bill?
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's where the kind of the marketing and promotion angle comes from. Um, I know for, I can speak at least for Romanian Spring, we have a, a core group of event planning team on there where we have a lot of discussions around, you know, here are fixed costs. Here are variable costs. You really have to approach it like a business. I find if you don't really approach it like a business venture, then you know something's going to pop up and it's going to make it non-sustainable down the line. I think really stressing, here's what the reenactment is. Here's the scenario. Here's what the terrain looks like. Here's the impression. All the things that reenactors look for for kind of their personal experience at a reenactment that's what you really need to stress when you're going live with an event as i like to say kind of pulling the trigger and putting it out online to say this is an event it's taking place on these days here's the cost let's say it's you know thirty dollars a person and say maybe you have a staggered price increase over time if i'm a reenactor and i'm hearing about an event for the first time i want to know what's what am i getting for my thirty dollars why am i driving Seven hours across the country and then spending $30 on top of it. I want to get kind of a premium experience out of it. Um, I think really articulating what reenactors are getting for their money is important. I think really stressing the longevity of a site is very important. I think as reenactors, we all saw what happened with 2020 and COVID. A lot of great events came and went, and a lot of public events left to because budgets just weren't there for hosting events, so I think you really need to hammer hone. you know, what's the long-term future of this site look like. Um, I really only like to focus my attention on events that are going to be sustainable in the long term. I think you really need to be very judicious with your time, but also assessing what are those costs that people need to pay, what are things that are essential to have, like porta-potties and potable water, and what are nice to haves, you know, smoke grenades, things like that. So um, really, you can't control how many people are going to attend, but I think if you're transparent with what you're offering people, I find that people are willing to pay more of a premium price for a premium reenacting experience.
1: I think it's interesting sometimes to look at how much events cost and think about what it is that people get for it. Um, like you mentioned $30 for me, I will pay $30 for, uh, basically any reenactment, even if it offers no amenities without thinking about it. Um, nowadays, I think that's, that's cheap. You know, that's what, I might spend that kind of money to go to see a movie or something at this point. Um, but as the price goes up from there, um, Mm -hmm. I know I am looking sort of critically at, okay, well, what, what is this money going to? And then I think there are there is a point at which an event cost could be so high that uh, basically nobody would pay it. You know, reenactors famously uh, being a little bit maybe on the cheap side, I think some people <laughs> would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of walking a tightrope, Chris. You need to find that sweet spot where you're not going to be going broke or, you know, pulling event funds out of your back pocket to cover costs, but you don't want to be prohibitively expensive. I find that, you know, if I think about events right now, you know, you're looking at the the $30 to maybe $70, $80 price point for kind of a premium, tactical, immersive experience. I think that's reasonable. Um, Inflation being what it is, it costs more money for people to come out to events It costs more money to feed 150 people at a tactical. It costs more money to, you know, reserve porta-potties. It's just, unfortunately, the nature of kind of the world we live in. And you do need to price things accordingly. I will say, um, I know for Romanian Spring, for example, we're kind of adopting a staggered pricing increase where it goes from, you know, we had a $35 early bird pricing Then we went up to $40 about a month later. I know on um, December 1st, we're going up to $50. And so far, um, I think people realize that if they're willing to spend a higher price point to get a better experience, I think people kind of understand that um, cost-benefit analysis relationship, however you want to term it. And I think people are willing to pay a higher price point to get a better experience. I think that's a good thing long-term for reenactors. I think a lot of reenactors, they just want to come out and have a good time, put their kit together, shoot some caps, hang out with their friends. And if there's a price tag associated with that, I think a lot of people are willing to pay that. And also at the end of the day, if somebody looks at one of our events and says, yeah, I'm not paying $50 to go to that event because I don't think you're providing what I want to get out of a reenacting experience, great. You know, there's other events to attend. I'm not offended if two or three people are turned off by the price, but after a certain point, you know, you do have hard costs with these events and you kind of have to put a line in the sand and say, this is what the event is. This is the cost if you want to participate. And sometimes that turns people off, but that's kind of sometimes the nature of reenacting, I suppose.
1: Yeah. You mentioned promotion and marketing, um, and I, I think there are a lot of different ways that people could approach that. What is the approach that, that you think maybe is the best for where you are at this time to get the word out about the events that you're running?
0: Yeah, I think um, tried and true is Facebook making event pages on there. Um, so prior to being a project manager, I worked at a very large um digital marketing firm in downtown Chicago and I specifically worked in social media marketing. So I have a little bit of experience there. And one of the things that's really important for promoting an event online or a product or really doing any kind of promotion online is really keeping up a steady source of content and information about whatever you're promoting. So in this case for, let's say, Victory in the Ardennes, um, you know, i have Eventbrite set up where we can send out email blasts. Um, You know, you take advantage of having registration and contact information for the previous event attendees. But I think really going above and beyond to show that you're trying to engage with the community that, you know, you want to attend the event. So posting, having people post impression photos to kind of get people excited about the event. Posting little snippets of historical context for victory in the Ardennes, what was the situation on the German side in December of 44? What was this situation on the American side? And I think really kind of almost crafting a story around the event. Here's what the scenario is, but here's the historical context that we're trying to portray. From a promotion standpoint, I have seen a lot of events where the promotion is, hey, go register, hey, go register, hey, go register. And I don't know, between me and you, Chris, I don't want to be Lectured (laughs) like a teacher scolding me to do something Um, I find that if you're trying to get some kind of call to action with people in this case getting someone to register Constantly kind of browbeating with them usually has an opposite effect I think you do get that as a reminder, but I think really varying how you're approaching the event talking about the historical context Getting other people besides you as the event coordinator posting in your public event group is crucial I don't want to be the one always posting things about the events I'm running. I can kind of give informational posts about crucial information, event schedules, you know, registration costs, if vehicles are allowed, if they're not Um, really kind of getting a core group of people that are kind of almost your brand ambassadors for the event and get those people talking and engaging with people. You find there's just kind of a natural snowball effect. Um, I know kind of I've, A couple of the folks working on this Romanian Spring event were very active with the Logansport Indiana events, and over time, you kind of build a natural, organic community around a specific event or a specific site, and over time, you have to do, I would say, less and less direct promotions, Um, so really kind of fostering that community dynamic through these regular posts of content that is... Fairly varied is really the route to go, but you need to stay consistent with it, with pushing out information, especially with a first-time event. Otherwise, people are going to lose interest and think nothing's happening, and that usually doesn't bode well for a new event.
1: Sure. Um, You mentioned kind of having a a team of people, and of course that that applies to multiple levels of the event where you also have to have... um, sort of an event staff, people who are in leadership roles at the event, they know they're going to be in those roles before the event comes around. And, um, you know, I've got to think that picking the right people has got to be really important for an event. Is that the case? Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, one person cannot do everything that is required to successfully run an event. I think... This really goes back to kind of building up relationships and placing trust in people. Um, A reenactment is really, it's a team activity and you need a core group of people. I like to have a group under 10 people working directly with me, covering all different aspects of the event. And you really need to build kind of a solid high-performing team. I feel like I'm using business speak here. It's just the way my mind goes sometimes. You really need to give people kind of their swim lanes and their areas of expertise and let them run with it. Um, Again, I'm going to use Romanian Spring as an example because it's top of mind for me. We have a really solid core group of people both on the German side from Fifth Company and from the Soviet unit Istošnik. I think we have around 10 people, give or take. We have weekly planning calls involving all these different aspects. We have a large Google Doc where we're tracking our budget, we're tracking our open items that we need to complete, and we're really approaching it from a professional level. One of the things I really appreciate with kind of a reenactment event planning team is putting the right people in the right roles. Um, There's great people who love running registration and tracking people down to make sure they pay. Great. If somebody really wants to do that, run with it, and they're good at it. Let them go with it. Um, for some tacticals, we want to construct temporary building facades. Who's a carpenter who really is passionate about that? Great. Give them in that role. Let them run. I I kind of like being the arbiter, putting the right people in the right place. Um, as you know, an overall event coordinator. I never want to come off like I have all the answers. Frequently, I don't have all the answers. But having the right people around me, that's kind of a brain trust to really weigh in on decisions and say, Adam, that's a terrible idea. That's going to cause X, Y, and Z. We're not going to do it. Or it's going to be cost prohibitive. Or Adam, that's a great idea. We tried this with, you know, this event we did two years ago, but it was a little wonky. Maybe we could change these two or three things to make it more effective. I I love that, and having that core group of people that are talented, that each have their dedicated area of specialty, um, specialization I should say, is really what makes an event successful. I've seen a lot of events and event planners kind of hoard all the decision making with one or two people, and inadvertently what always happens is those one or two people get burned out. and the reenactment goes away or the reenactment stagnates. You really kind of need to have a core group of people where something does happen and someone has to step away, other individuals can step in and move the ball forward.
1: And of course, as you mentioned, you kind of have to reach across no man's land in a, in a figural sense here because you have to be working with you know, the, the opponent, the opposite side. And I, I'm sure that's true, whether it's a tactical or a public display, that you need to have a dialogue and a relationship with representatives from the various sort of uh, groups or sides or wh- however you want to call it, who are going to be attending. And I'm sure that can be a challenge sometimes, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, reenacting is a microcosm of the real world. All the personalities and differences that you may have with people in the real world, they manifest in reenacting too. So you get people who may be a bit more combative or a bit more standoffish. You may get people that are more collaborative and open-minded. I think to your your earlier point of a question, Chris, about Working with the opposite side, that's always um, can be a bit of a a delicate dance where if you're running a public event, it's a lot easier. You know, you put together a script or a scenario of what's going to happen during a public battle. I think doing that from a tactical standpoint, it's a little more challenging. You obviously want both sides to play fair against each other and let things develop as they are, but you do need to be in contact with, you know... A unit commander on the Soviet side needs to be able to talk to the unit commander on the German side in case an emergency happens or something like that. But you also need to kind of, I, I don't want to say orchestrate situations, but structure the weekend and the schedule where you're going to make sure that people have a good time. As reenactors, we know, you know some people like the rear area things, some people like busting caps and shooting at each other. You kind of have to tailor-make the situations to a certain degree, but let them develop organically. So, you know, if there's a tactical, maybe both sides know that one side or the other side is going to do some kind of movement at 1 o'clock. Then something will happen at 1 o'clock and things develop as they do. So there's definitely a bit of a give and a take, but you definitely want to keep it fluid so it's engaging and exciting for everybody.
1: You've mentioned the Romanian Spring event that's coming up. Um, Mm -hmm. I know there were uh, tacticals in Logansport, Indiana for the last several years that seemed to be um, really kind of successful, Um, and I guess that event is not going to take place next year, and um, I've seen a lot of attention sort of pivoting towards the Romanian Spring event. What is your vision for this event that's coming up?
0: yeah so romanian spring um it's definitely a very unique property so dodgeville wisconsin where this site is located is i'd like to say one of the few areas of midwest with actual topography so the area around dodgeville um, mineral point for the listeners who know wisconsin well um, it's an area with a lot of mining quarries limestone areas So, the property itself is situated in a very cool kind of limestone valley, and there's kind of mixed topography. So, when you think about the Midwest, you think about just big open cornfields. Well, this is actually situated in a valley. We have a very scenic stream running through it, and then running through the middle, uh, fenced in, so to speak, by two open pastures, is kind of this big... um, Escarpment limestone bluff going up so you get some very interesting hilly terrain So when we were thinking about using this this site for a reenactment um, I was actually approached by an individual who participated in the victory in the Ardenne event And he just simply mentioned his family had a farm on the other side of town, and he'd love to do something with this terrain so the first time I went out there I Just instantly thought this is very unique terrain. We have to try to do something here and You know, we've always wanted within our unit, 5th Company of to portray a campaign that our unit historically fought in, but that is pretty wide in terms of impressions. So we picked um, the battles around the town of Targo Frumas. Um, Historical context, uh, spring 1944, um, the Soviets were pushing in out of western Ukraine and starting to butt up against eastern Romania. Germans really wanted to hold on to Romania because of the oil reserves there. And really, the site really looks like the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. I'm like, we have to do this. We have to do this really cool scenario. Um, And I think, too, it's a really cool time period because 1944 by that point in the year, at least on the German side, you see them wearing smocks, you see them wearing parkas, you see them wearing M36 tunics, you kind of have a mishmash of everything. So from an impression standpoint, at least on the German side, I can't speak as much to the Soviet side. It's very loose. You can kind of wear a lot of things so it's not super stringent in terms of what you can and can't wear, but you've got a lot of variety. Um, I can speak to the Soviet side, they're really on top of their impressions. I think it's going to be a very dynamic battle. We're constructing a small replica of the town of Targo Frumas. We're going to have some structures and a little town that we'll fight over, which is really cool. And I think long term, this is going to be a sustainable reenactment site. In conversations with the property owner, the first time I scouted the event site, he said, well... You know, in year number two, we could put the German camp on this side. In year number three, we can put the Soviet camp on this side. So we've kind of stumbled into a very unique situation where we have a property owner that's very receptive. He wants to do this long term. He's talked about hiring heavy equipment to improve positions. So I think long term, we want to make this, um, along with the Victory in the Arden tactical, kind of have Dodgeville Wisconsin as kind of a hub for tacticals. I think it's a good central location um yeah i just really want to see it grow and portray very unique scenarios that are conducive to this terrain
1: sounds like a great plan you've given us so much advice here and i really appreciate that um i guess i would ask is there anything that we haven't already gone over that you feel is important to making a reenactment event a success
0: i i think if To the folks out there that think this is something that may be interesting to them, something they may want to take a crack at, I would say talk to folks that you know that have run reenactments themselves and kind of give, get the down and dirty perspective from them. Um, It's a very non-traditional role you have to fulfill as an event planner. Um, There are a lot of considerations, there are a lot of people you need to talk to. And really, by the time the reenactment's happening and people are shooting at each other on the field, there's kind of a sigh of release that, hey, yes, we we pulled this off. We made it successful. What can we do for next year? I would definitely say if people are interested in doing this, I see a, a big push from kind of the younger generations coming up and reenacting who want to host events, which is phenomenal. I would say really leverage kind of the expertise of people that you know that have run events in the past and really Hear about what went well, what didn't go well. And I think just finally just be flexible. You need to be very flexible. You need to rely on other people. You need to trust other people because if you're trying to do everything yourself, you're going to burn out. You're not going to be able to do it. So leverage the experience of the people who have done it in the past. Stay flexible. And I think just be very open-minded. You never know when opportunity is going to come knocking and you're going to find a great site for a reenactment. There's so many various reasons uh, and different integral parts that kind of
1: keep a unit together and keep it running for inching up toward 50 years here as a, as a unit. So to be, be able to say that you've been around for, for this amount of time, it, it's, it's quite impressive.
0: To get that full immersion in 3,000 meters, uh, it snowed on us. It was frost at night, sleeping in, under cell ponds. Yeah, it was a great experience being on on that location, being in the Alps, uh, wearing the uniform and being with like minded guys. It's a real pleasure to be here as a a long-time listener and someone whose long drives to reenactments are uh, filled with the sounds of the Reenactors' Corner
1: podcast. It's a bit of a fanboy moment. The Reenactors' Corner, bringing history to life. Adam, for people who want to get in touch with you, maybe they're interested in learning more about the unit that you run or doing one of these events that we've talked about, uh, what's the best way for people to find information about that?
0: Yeah, so Facebook's going to be the quickest. So our unit, 5th Company Gross Deutschland, you can find our unit page on Facebook. Um, For the Romanian Spring event, you can find that as well, just Romanian Spring, the battles for Targo Frumas. We have a public Facebook page for that. For Victory in the Ardennes, we also have a public Facebook page for that as well. And if people have any questions or want to participate or maybe fill a certain role for any of these events, they can just reach out to me directly um, on Facebook, Adam Bednar. I'm pretty, pretty visible on there.
1: Awesome. Adam, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your insight about this. I really appreciate it a lot, and it's been great talking to you.
0: Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate the time.
1: Great. So uh, final thanks to all the Patreon supporters. Without you guys, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this podcast. And uh, to Adam and everybody else out there, I will see you in the field.
0: See you in the field.
1: We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not reach out to us on Facebook or Discord? Just search for The Reenactor's Corner and you'll find us there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air. And you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactor's Corner.